John chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 1 to 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow. But he will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have sent your son to be our shepherd, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep, the source of our eternal life. We ask you, Lord, that we might rejoice and revel in this truth and also make a clear distinction between him and the many false shepherds. Teach us to be that way and to always listen to the voice of our shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This chapter, this passage in the chapter, actually can be a source of much confusion. Who is Christ addressing? If we don't answer that question, then, then this chapter may be confusing because of some of the things he says in this chapter. He is continuing a discourse or continuing an explanation to the Pharisees, not directly to the disciples, though the disciples, the, the apostles are hearing, and though the blind man is present, he's actually addressing this to the Pharisees, they are the addressees of this discourse, of this parable of the shepherd and the sheep. Not to say that there's no implications for the true sheep and true shepherds and false shepherds. Of course, that's what he's talking about here. But when he's speaking and warning the sheep, he is trying to get the sheep who are listening to move away and to continue to reject the Pharisees who are the false shepherds and to cling to Christ, the true shepherd, and those who follow Christ by preaching the word of Christ as under shepherds, under shepherds of Christ, the great and good shepherd. This is the point of this passage. We notice reasons why we should take it all together. It may be difficult to understand initially, but let's seek to prove this point. The point is that from John chapter 9, verse 1, to John 10, 21, John 9, 1 to 10, 21, we have this incident 
and the aftermath of Jesus healing the blind man on the Sabbath day. He healed the blind man on the Sabbath day, and for that reason, the Jews despised Christ. That's what we find from chapter 9, verse 1 to 10, 21, healing the blind man on the Sabbath day, specifically this blind man. Well, in this confusion and in this interchange between the blind man and the Pharisee and then the blind man who's now healed in Christ, some of the Pharisees come and see where the blind man is and they are in a dialogue with Christ. That's how the chapter ended in the previous chapter. Chapter 9, notice 940. 940 and 41. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind to, are we? Jesus said to them, not to the blind man, not to his disciples, but to them, the Pharisees, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. It's clear he's addressing the Pharisees. Then look, is there any conclusion at the end of verse 41? In terms of saying, then the Pharisees departed or Jesus departed. There's no separation there, right? Chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus continues, truly, truly, I say to you. Even chapter 10, verse 1, does not begin a new setting, a new occasion. It continues with this address to the Pharisees. This address to the Pharisees. If you have a red-letter edition of the New Testament, if your English Bible happens to be that way, you'll notice that the red letters continue from the end of chapter 9, 941, and they continue right into chapter 10, verse 1, without any black letters or any break of a change of scene, a change of dialogue, or anything like that, right? So that's why we should understand what he's saying here as being a confrontation, a rebuke, an exposure of the Pharisees in the presence of the disciples and the blind man, and by implication, further implication, all of us to understand that Jesus is saying this in this context. Do we understand? Uh, One more, uh, two two more points, and that is, in the book of John, when John quotes Jesus as saying, truly, truly, in no other occasion does truly, truly begin a dialogue. It usually is in the middle of a dialogue. Truly, truly. That's a point. And then also, after Jesus' discourse, look at 19 and 21. 19 to 21. John 10, 19 to 21. When he finishes this discourse on the shepherd and the sheep, 19 says, 10, 19. There arose a division again among the Jews because of these words. Because they were listening to those words, right? And many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Who are those people? Those people are the same in verse 40. Chapter 9, verse 40 Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things. The same continues until he finishes this discourse on the shepherd and the sheep. And then verse 21. Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And there we have it. The eyes of the blind. Well, who was the blind man? It was the blind man of chapter 9. 
This is the beginning and end. 9.1 to 10.21. Okay, if we keep this in mind, we understand now why Jesus is both confronting the Pharisees, but warning the disciples. Chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. This is a solemn truth. That's why he repeats it. Truly, truly. We must understand. Don't mitigate it. Don't take it casually. Put full attention into this truth. He who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. The sheep are collected into a fold. They are grouped together at the end of the day to protect themselves, to to be protected overnight. And the shepherd is the one who protects them in this fold and group of the sheep. This would be a, a, a walled place and it would have a doorway where they could enter. Well, who's going to be right there at the door or be the doorkeeper to prevent the wild animals, the wolf, the other wild animals from attacking the sheep overnight? Well, the shepherd has to be right there at the door. He has to be a human door if there is no physical door, correct? He has to be there or there's a double door, a physical door, and then he has a human door right there to make sure nothing happens and that door does not swing open for some reason and a wolf goes in there to attack the sheep. He's saying here that only the shepherd, only the shepherd is, has access to those sheep, not anyone else. Only the shepherd has access to those sheep. So if someone enters... Aside from the owner of the sheep, the shepherd, he would be a thief and a robber. Isn't that what a wolf is or a fox is? Isn't that what the wild animals are? They are thieves and robbers, wild animals preying on domesticated animals, right? Who are there because of their owners, their masters taking care of them. A thief and a robber. He's used this phrase, thief and robber, here and again, A thief is typically one who does it secretly, and a robber is usually one who does it openly and with violence. A thief, one who does it secretly, and another who does it openly and with violence. They don't own the sheep. They should not have access to them. Verse 2, But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. He who enters by the door. Well, who would grant entry into the door but the shepherd? Therefore, if there is an under-shepherd, let's say a novice, uh, a new shepherd, a new pastor who needs to be trained, who works under Christ, who is learning of Christ, and then he is given the care of the sheep as a subordinate to Christ, so he is then an under-shepherd. There is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, Christ, who's the only perfect and good one. But then he has those ministers who take care of his flock locally and all around the world locally. This one must enter by the door of the sheep. 
by permission granted by the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd. Then he will be a genuine under-shepherd, which means that Christ must call, Christ must qualify, Christ must approve of those pastors or shepherds who take care of Christ's flock, local flock. It must be ordained and approved by Christ. Verse 3, To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Verse 3, To him the shepherd, the doorkeeper opens. Who is the doorkeeper in this analogy? It's either Christ himself or God the Father. Either Christ himself or God the Father who grants permission to open the door and then the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. That shepherd who has been granted permission to the sheep, this assumes that there has been some training and some confidence both from the sheep and the under-shepherd calling to the sheep and then the sheep understand, recognize the voice of their shepherd, and then they come out in the morning time. And at night time, they are called to go to the pen, but in the morning time, they are called out of it to go out into the pasture to graze. They have to hear the voice of the shepherd, and he leads them out. The hearing of the voice, the sheep... Uh, like some other animals, they recognize the voice of the master and they will only listen to the voice of their master. These sheep have been trained to do so. They also, the sheep are known by name. That is, like many of us do in modern times and even throughout history, certain animals are usually dubbed with names. And shepherds here in Israel, they give names to their sheep. So they recognize them. They are intimately acquainted with them. They know their strengths and weaknesses. They know the way they look. They know how to help them. They know which ones have proclivities to kind of wander on the edge and go where they shouldn't go. The shepherd is acquainted with them. He knows each one by name like that. He is that endeared with them, to them. He loves them that much that he is acquainted with them and knows them by name and leads them out to good pasture. Verse 4. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The custom here is for the shepherd to go first and for the shepherd to to speak as to what the sheep should do. In some places, the shepherd is behind the sheep and drives the the sheep ahead. But in this custom, the shepherd goes first and the sheep follow, which is an adequate explanation or a very good explanation of the way Christ is. He is our forerunner. He leads the way. He's our champion. He's our commander. He shows us the right way. And he is our shepherd. And even the under-shepherds must be good examples for their flock 
to follow. They must listen to that voice as a good example to follow those under shepherds. It says further in verse 4, The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They know his voice. It's important, very important to be that that acquainted and, and that familiar with one another. They know one another. Verse 5. And a stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. When they hear the voice of a stranger, the analogy here is when the stranger speaks and the stranger says things in a way and the content of what he says, both the manner and the actual message of the stranger is contrary to what they know to be true because they know with confidence that their under-shepherd has given them good pasture, when they hear the voice of a stranger and his message, his content, his words, his doctrine is contrary to what they know to be true, they refuse to listen. They refuse to listen. The sheep internally, they know that's wrong. It's not right. It's false. It's contrary to the Word of God. It's contrary to the truth. It's contrary to the voice I have been hearing, the good voice of the Good Shepherd. Verse 6. Verse 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them. But they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Who are them and they? Also, verse 7, Jesus therefore said to them, who are the they and the them? It's not just the blind man. It has to be the Pharisees. And also, who doesn't understand, at least initially does not understand, parables, riddles, figures of speech? Who does not understand? Is it the elect? Is it the believer who does not understand? Who has to scratch his head and figure it out? No. It is the unbeliever who doesn't understand. In verse 6, it's likely the case that those who didn't understand were the Pharisees themselves. The Pharisees themselves. Keep your place in John 10 and go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. After Jesus announced the parable of the sower, seeds, and soils, sower, seeds, and soils, and before he explained it, the disciples came to him privately to ask a question. Matthew 13, 10, 10 to 17. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall be more, uh, more given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. 
Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn again, and I heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus announced or propounded this riddle or this parable to the multitudes. But then on the side, the disciples ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? To them, the crowds, the multitudes, why do you speak to them in parables? And who is in the crowd? Probably also some Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, Herodians, right? Some of them are in the crowd. But even then, if we're talking about the general populace, why are you talking to them like this in these figures of speech? Parables and riddles. Why are you talking this way? Is their question. Jesus says in verses 11 to 15, 11 to 15, God grants to his elect to understand to their benefit. But God does not grant to the reprobate the ability to understand for their benefit. He actually withholds that benefit from them. He withholds the benefit of comprehension for their salvation. He withholds that from them. But he doesn't withhold it to the elect. That's the same in John 10. Jesus is showing the Pharisees that they don't get it. That he's talking about them and they don't realize it. But then he's going to tell them, I'm talking about people like you. He doesn't say it in a... He says it more directly, but not completely in a direct way by saying, I'm talking about you, Pharisees. Let's see. He explains himself in 7 to 10. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. A further declaration of truth, solemn truth in verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He clarifies who the door is. He says it again in verse 9. I am the door. He first said it in a figure earlier. Then he identifies himself. I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. No mistaking who the door is. It's Christ. If Jesus is the door and the Pharisees or anybody else reject Jesus being the door, they are thieves and robbers. They have no salvation. They must go through Christ. Christ. 
If they don't go through Christ, there's no salvation for them. Further, in verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Whether they do it secretly or openly, whether they are thieves or robbers, they are unbelievers, they are wicked, and they don't deserve to have any access to the sheep. They are false shepherds. In fact, they want to, they love to, devour the sheep that they possess or that they've captured. They love to devour. They are thieves and robbers. Who are these, in verse 8, all who came before me? He uses a comprehensive, universal word, all who came before me. We should not get this universal term confused. He does not mean to include Moses and the prophets. He does not mean to include John the Baptist. He does not mean to include anybody else who was a righteous man or woman in the Old Testament who preached the gospel. He's not talking about them. He's using this universal phrase, all who came before me, to refer to all of the thieves and the robbers who came before him, including which group? The Pharisees. The Pharisees, which were mentioned in chapter 9, verse 40, as recently as chapter 9, verse 40, that he means them. They did precede Christ. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Herodians, the scribes, the false prophets, the false teachers, They all did precede Christ. They will also follow him as they do in our age. And he's saying, he's saying to them, the Pharisees, and to all the others listening, watch out, do not trust the Pharisees. Do not believe them, do not follow them. He's further emphasizing the fact that they haven't been listening to their voice anyways. We'll see that in a moment. They haven't been listening to their voice But he's assuring them, you are doing right to avoid the voice of the Pharisees and you're doing right to listen to my voice and to all of those under-shepherds that I have commissioned to the ministry. Listen to us, do not listen to them. Jesus believes in us and them. Though many today say we shouldn't speak in those terms. Verse, Verse 8 says, But the sheep did not hear them. They did not hear them. In fact, like Lot, Lot in Sodom, his soul was tormented day after day as he saw their lawless deeds. 2 Peter 2, 6-8. Lot was tormented. He was a part of the sheep and he would not listen to the false shepherds of Sodom. The same with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17, 16, he is in the city of Athens and it says his soul or his spirit was being tormented as he was beholding the idol, provoked or tormented, beholding the city full of idols. He couldn't put up with it. He couldn't tolerate it. He had to do something. He had to confront it, which he did. He first went to the marketplace and started to evangelize. And then he went to 
the Areopagus, that hill or council, where those men, the city fathers, would listen to new and strange teachings and then muse with each other and talk and debate with each other about those teachings. He went and preached the truth to them. He didn't succumb to them. He didn't hear their voice. He, in fact, walked away or confronted it. That is the method of Scripture. Certain situations we must confront it, and in other situations, walk away. Verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. We must enter through Christ, and if we do, what do we have? We have free access, free and safe access, secure access to the things of God, and also abundance. Verse 9 says, pasture. We have green grass, plenty of green grass to partake. The Lord himself will give us security and abundance. This is what he provides to us freely, graciously to his sheep. All that we need in our spiritual life is provided by Christ. He grants us this protection and the pasture, all that we need. He will safely bring us into his heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4, 18. 2 Timothy 4.18 Safely deliver us from every evil deed and bring us into His heavenly kingdom. However, verse 10, though He provides life abundantly, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. That's their only purpose. Temporarily, the sheep might think it's okay. But if the sheep are not on guard, the thief will, in fact, steal them away, kill and destroy them, kill and devour them. And then, whatever he does not eat, he will let the birds of prey finish his task. That's the way thieves are. Thieves are destructive. We shouldn't trust them. We shouldn't believe in them. We shouldn't follow them. We have to actually avoid them. Run away from them. Flee. Even if we have to be scattered, flee away from the false shepherds, the wild beasts. These false shepherds are compared to the wild animals of the forest and the field. Why would we want to follow them when we have Christ who came to give us life and abundance? Life and abundance. Everything we need, everything that we would want to relish is found in Christ. So listen to Christ. Listen to the word of Christ and listen to the genuine, true, under-shepherds of Christ. Don't listen to anybody else. Don't try to mix and match Don't try to have a buffet and put those buffet items on your plate to to consume whatever you feel like consuming, picking and choosing. No, you have to be, we have to be discerning and only be nourished by Christ. 
only be nourished by Christ. He has given us, has come to give us eternal life and abundance, a surplus forever and ever. One day, we're going to eat at a banquet, and it's going to be a banquet as Isaiah describes it. Isaiah 25, 6 to 12. Isaiah 25, 6 to 12. Isaiah describes it as a banquet of aged wine and choice meat. Choice meat and aged wine. It's going to be a lavish banquet that God has prepared for us. Why should we go to anyone else? Only go to Christ and to his true under-shepherds. Let's now emphasize a few points we've just made. One point is that Jesus Christ is the only way. It doesn't matter how often we say it, people are prone to misunderstanding and prone to rejecting that truth. There are many people, even in Christianity, who give lip service to belief in Christ, who say, well, Jesus is the best way, He is our way. He's the American way. He's the way of whoever hears. But you don't have to exclusively believe in Jesus Christ to go to heaven. Even people holding the Bible in their hands, teaching from the Bible, will say things like that, who will preach and teach those things. They will say that there are many ways to go to heaven. Since Jesus died for every person, therefore... Since he died for every person, people in other places who never hear of Christ, or even if they hear of Christ, they don't believe in him, but they live a good religious life in their own religion, they will go to heaven. They will go to heaven, they say. And there are many, many famous, popular preachers who have said things like that, such as such as Billy Graham. Billy Graham taught that his whole life. He taught it his whole life. And as far as the evidence that I have seen, it goes back to at least the 1950s, about 1955 or 1957. And he has said it repeatedly, and his ministry was conducted that way. He would have people from many unbelieving heretical denominations in leadership and in counseling the people who would come to his meetings, his crusades. Even those who believed in killing babies, those who believed in homosexuality, those who believed in universalism, which is what I just mentioned, that there's ways to get to heaven aside from just straightforwardly believing Jesus died and rose again for you, for your sins. He's just one name, but there are many, many, many just like him. The more popular the preacher, the more you can be assured that that's what he believes. Not to say small preachers of small churches never believe that either. Many of them also do. But almost guaranteed a popular preacher believes that. But Jesus said no. So any pastor who says yes to that is a false pastor, is a false shepherd. Because Jesus says he is the only door of the sheep, and they must believe in Him. They must believe in Him. That shows us that 
Hindus who don't believe in Jesus, whether they've heard of him or not, they go to hell. Buddhists, communistic people, atheists, Muslims, whoever, tribal religionists, whoever they are, they go to hell because they have not believed in Christ as the only Savior. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. And Peter and the apostles understood that because they say in Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. John, or Paul the apostle says the same. He says the same in 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Only Christ Jesus is the mediator between God and men. Only Christ. John also. 1 John 2, 22 to 23. 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Who is it that denies the divine sonship of Christ? Who does that? Well, ancient and modern Jews, for the the vast majority of them, they reject the Savior, the Mediator, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Most of the Jews would fit into that category. John, who is a Jew, is saying, most of my comrades, most of my countrymen, are actually going to hell because they refuse to believe in the Son. If they reject the Son, they don't have the Father. Another group, major group, that comprises at least one billion people worldwide are Muslims. Muslims deny the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. They categorically deny it and they blaspheme regularly against it. They blaspheme against it. Well, how can they go to heaven or to the paradise that they imagine? They can't go, they won't go because they forthrightly refuse to believe that Jesus is the only door of the sheep, the only Savior who is Christ, the Son of God, divine Son of God. It goes on and on like that. And so whatever Christians are saying that are completely false. They're in the wrong for doing so. Furthermore, what do we notice that Christ our Lord, the Jesus of the Bible, and even the red-letter Jesus that many people say they believe, what's He doing here? Is He not calling the false teachers, the false prophets, is He not calling them thieves and robbers? Is He not calling them destroyers? In verse 10, killers, thieves, and destroyers in verse 10. He's calling false teachers and false prophets by those names. If Jesus calls them by those names, why can't we call them by those names? We should call them by those names because if we don't identify them, the people are not going to be aware. The people need to be alerted. They need to be warned. They need to be told who they are. 
They need to be told that. Even in our day, they must be told. Because there will always be false teachers and false prophets, male and female, throughout all history. Moses had to fight them. Jeremiah had to fight them. Jesus had to fight them. John had to fight them. Paul had to fight them. They're, they're fighting them all over the place. Why should we expect our situation to be any different? No, it's not different. In fact, many places, many places, the scriptures in the New Testament warn us. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 2 is an example. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He says, just as there were false prophets in the past, there will also be false teachers among you. He's using these words interchangeably. He's not saying, strictly speaking, there was never a false teacher in the past, nor are there false prophets today. He's just using these two phrases interchangeably, false prophets and false teachers. There were always false prophets and teachers, and there will always be false prophets and teachers. And how do they work? They work secretly. Their heresies or false doctrines are destructive. You see what we're talking about? We're not talking about, at the buffet line, we're not talking about one man liking uh, beef and another one liking chicken. What we're talking about is that on that buffet line, there is some food that's actually poisonous food. Let's say it's in the dessert. The dessert is sweet. It's appealing by sight, right? That dessert actually is full of poison. And when people eat of that, they will die. That is the destructive nature of the heresies that he's talking about here. And they will be judged with swift Destruction. God's not idle. Though we don't see it always, evidently with our own eyes now, it will take place. That's how seriously they are blaspheming God and the truth of God. And we should take it that seriously too. Verse 2. They usually use sensuality. They use the flesh. They use the basic human desires, sensuality, our senses. They use our basic human desires against us. They will lead us. They will give us a fragrant aroma and lead us in a certain direction. And then they'll dupe us after a while and destroy us. That's usually how it happens. They will use something that's enticing to deceive us and destroy us. False teachers. We also notice from John 10, 9 and 10, that Jesus called this group out by name. John and Jesus. The Pharisees. The Pharisees. Are we permitted as Christians to use names? 
Are we as Christians permitted to use names? Or, or are we supposed to only speak in generalities? There's somebody out there. There's someone on the internet. There is a famous pastor somewhere. He lives there in that country. Are we supposed to speak in generalities and vagaries when we refer to them? Or are we supposed to be specific? Well, doesn't the Bible say Pharisees? Doesn't it say Sadducees? Doesn't it say Herodians? These are false groups, false teachers, right? Does the Bible not even mention specific names from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible? The thieves and the robbers? Cain is the first one in Genesis 4. And one of the last ones in, as an individual would be in, in Revelation 2, 2 and 3, Nicol, the, the Nicolaitans and Jezebel. The Nicolaitans and Jezebel. If the, those are personal names, those are personal names mentioned there. But even other many other names are mentioned in the Bible. And we are taught to identify them in order to know to avoid them. How can we avoid them if we can't identify them by name? If you had a news report that said, there's a certain drug that's been discovered by the manufacturer to have some poison in it, and that drug is on the shelf of your local drugstore. If that were the, the extent of the news announcement, would you be satisfied or would you be terrified? You would be terrified, not satisfied, right? How does that help us spiritually if we don't know? To know, one example of this is the letter of Paul to Timothy. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy we, we see here that Paul mentions two false teachers, two false teachers or two unbelievers in every chapter to warn Timothy and the Ephesian Christians. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. 115. I'm sorry. Second um, Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. 115. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Figulus and Hermogenes. Those who turned away from Paul, those who apostatized, fell away, or who started to preach heresies, he names the, the two, Figulus and Hermogenes. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2, 16 to 18. 2, 16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. These two false teachers were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. The first ones, they depart from Paul, which shows that if you separate from Paul, you're no good. And in this case, if you preach that the resurrection has already taken place, you also are no good. And in fact, he compares it to a medical condition, verse 17. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Someone might say that analogy of news, the news report and a poisonous drug on the shelf doesn't work. Well, yes, it does work because here he says, 
Spiritually speaking, someone's doctrine, someone's teaching can be cancerous, gangrene. Cancerous doctrine that's going to destroy the individual who doesn't deal with it. So deal with it and avoid those two false teachers. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We pick it up at verse 5, 3, 5 to 8. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And avoid such as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. Who are these men? They encourage the sins of verses 1 to 4. They hold to a form of godliness, so they pretend. They fake it in front of people. They hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They don't really believe in the power of the gospel, though they use the word gospel. What should we do with them? Avoid them, verse 5 says. It doesn't say pick and choose. It doesn't say cherry pick. It says avoid them. Avoid them. Have nothing to do with them. And the typical behavior of false teachers. They exploit women, verses 6 and 7. They exploit women, get a large following of women. Instead of teaching the men to be men, and for the men to teach their own women at home. They exploit the women, verses 6 and 7. Verse 8, he names them. He says, in this case, I want to tell you that Moses faced these two evil men who opposed him. And in the same way, these men are of a depraved mind and rejected as regards the faith. If they practice these sins, they are depraved and they are rejected as regards the faith. So why do you have anything to do with them? Turn away from them. Finally, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come... Bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Tarpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. He does commend a few brothers here, and he mentions them by name. So it's good for us to commend brothers and mention them by name. The two that he mentions that have defected or opposed the gospel, verse 10, Demas, by loving the present world, departed from Paul. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. And why does he mention Alexander? Verse 15, be on guard 
against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. It's not merely that we're trying to make a skeptical of people. We're not just out for fun or our, our base pleasures to make fun of people. We need to expose them so that other people know who we're talking about and avoid following them lest they be destroyed. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. Jesus did it. The prophets did it. The apostles did it. And they encourage us to do the same. And one more point. Are we not to be extra careful to make sure we know if a shepherd, an under-shepherd of Christ, is a true under-shepherd or a false under-shepherd? Are we not supposed to do it? Today, if we were to do it, they would call us dividers. They would say, doctrine divides. Doctrine divides. No. Doctrine doesn't divide. False doctrine divides. True doctrine unites. True doctrine unites. False doctrine divides. How do we know false doctrine divides? Jude Jude says, after explaining false teachers similar to the way Peter does in 2 Peter, Jude says, in Jude 16, Jude 16, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. The false prophets, false teachers, and those who follow them are grumblers finding fault. So who are the actual grumblers? It's the wicked who criticize the faithful. The grumblers are not the faithful criticizing the wicked, but the wicked grumblers who criticize the righteous, the faithful. They are the grumblers, according to Jude. They are the ones who are the fault finders. They are the ones who follow after their own lusts. They are the ones who speak arrogantly. They are the ones who flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Verse 17, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, There shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Who are the dividers? These are the ones who cause divisions. False doctrine divides. True doctrine does not divide. They are the ones who preach false doctrines, and they are the ones who are worldly-minded. We are heavenly-minded. They are worldly-minded. We have the Spirit. They are devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit in them. They might say so. They might champion the Spirit in all kinds of uh, kooky and spooky ways. They might make reference to the Holy Spirit, but they don't have the Spirit. They are devoid of the Holy Spirit. So how can we know? One more place to go. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 
to confirm that true doctrine assembles the godly together. False doctrine scatters the people and divides the people. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, 1 to 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If we want to know the difference between truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil, don't believe every spirit. Test them. There are many false prophets. We must know that if we confess Jesus Christ in truth, then we have the Spirit of God. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We will overcome. He actually says it in the past tense. We have overcome. Verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome. That overcoming is guaranteed to us. We are that way. Further, how are we going to know the difference? They are from the world. They speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. If the world listens to them, you already know the difference. It's easy to figure out. Six, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. Who are the we and the us here? The apostles and those who follow the apostolic doctrine. The apostles and those who follow the apostolic doctrine. Since the apostles are from God, whoever listens to the apostolic doctrine, they are from God too. That's how we can know the difference. Let's then only look to Christ, only look to the true under-shepherds of Christ, and reject all the false under-shepherds. Christ has life and he has it abundantly. Why should we go anywhere else? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.